the first uh, patient stories that I'm actually going to think about right now, the ones that just popped to mind were um, patients that I've worked with in the ALS clinic uh, at GW, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, it, a theme that, uh, what I recall is the first time I met this patient, um, I was wrote, it was my, as I started in ALS. And at that point in time, um, people told me, you know, Lorenzo, you are kind of nuts. I mean, you're going to be depressed after you get done uh, with this. Uh, this is terminal illness, but I, I just, I, I really enjoyed working with my colleagues in neurology and I wanted to see what, what I could do to be of assistance. And I remember first going into the room and the patient um, looking at me and the family and the patient essentially, I'm paraphrasing, like really weeping, uh, very crying. And the family also crying and the patient really thinking like, you know, I'm going to die in about a year and a half. I'm going to, I'm going to slowly deteriorate. I'm going to lose all my muscle function. Um, I'm not going to, I may not be able to speak and my family's going to watch this. This is awful. Um, and so I'm listening to this. I have no words for it. None. None. This isn't, this is not a distortion. Um, the patient was not, incorrect in his evaluation. And it was a very, 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 very uh, sad moment. Um, at that point in time, there was, there was a great deal of pain. Um, and I just sat there with the family and experienced that pain with them. But as that happened, something interesting came um, just by me just sitting there. Um, the patient brought up like, you know, well, you know, at least I got to see my son do X, Y, or Z. And then I started to think about, all right, how does this person find meaning in life? What, how can we make every moment meaningful? Um, and then we started to talk and the family started to talk and the spirit started to lift. Nothing changed. The reality of the situation was still the reality of the situation. Um, but we were able to find meaning in the moment, all right, and meaning in the future while still facing reality. That was the start of my interest or starting to do a little bit more studying in terms of existential psychotherapy or palliative psychotherapy. Um, and that patient taught me quite a bit. And one of the things, and I'm obviously blending some things together, but um, I've watching somebody as they slowly lose muscle function, as they deteriorate, whereas all they might have left is an eye blink, but still seeing their spirit in that eye blink, that's profoundly powerful, um, profoundly powerful. And that was one of the first things that I think about. And what, what did I learn from this? Um, I learned that end of life does not result in depression. End of life does not result in a uh, lack of meaning. Um, really, it depends on a lot of things, as all things depend on how we live our life. Uh, and I also um, realized that there, there are endings, but there aren't necessarily per se. I mean, this, this happy ending that we all want just isn't there. Um, there are endings and it's what you make of it. 
this patient found meeting and it was more or less kind of positive. I've had all other patients that have come found meeting and they've come to terms with it, but it isn't as nice or flowery as that. But at the end of the day, they still found meaning. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. My guest today is Dr. Lorenzo Norris. He is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and also the associate dean of student affairs and administration at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He is also the host of the MD Edge PsychCast podcast. Dr. Norris, welcome. Thanks for having me, Paris. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your early life. Um, in terms of my early life, uh, I'm not sure how far back you want me to start, but I'll just kind of capsulize it. Um, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, May 15th, 1973. Um, so, and I grew up uh, with my mom. Um, I was raised by my mother, um, Gloria Norris. So um, I was an, I'm an only child, so no brothers or sisters or anything of that nature. So, and my early life, um, kind of as it relates to medicine, I always had an interest or a fascination with medicine, um, probably since I was, people tell me since I was in uh, four or five years old. So, and ever since that point, I'd always wanted to be a physician. I was really fortunate that um, both my aunt and my uncle were uh, both physicians. Um, so I spent a lot of my summers in um, Alabama. Um, my uncle was an internist and he had a farm. And so it was really an interesting thing. I mean, I'd be going from a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, Euclid, like concrete, basketball courts, all of this other kind of stuff. And then I go to Tuskegee, Alabama and chickens and cows and ducks and all kinds of things and horses. Um, but early on, I just had a real interest in um, medicine. Um, and so my mom did a really, really, really good job of fostering that. And my father was also a huge support. My parents were divorced, um, but my father always uh, was definitely present in my life. And he is, um, he's actually trained as a social worker and now he's a pastor. And my mother was actually originally a teacher. So I always tease my colleagues in social work that, you know, I actually have social work in my blood and you don't. So, um, but that's just a jab at them. So in any event, um, that was pretty much uh, my path. And I ended up going to Case Western Reserve uh, University um, Medical School, uh, uh, undergraduate as well as medical school. And um, when I was there, um, I actually, um, as an undergrad, I actually met um, who was ended up being my wife at that time as an undergrad. Um, eventually down the road, my wife, Sharon DeRoe, she was also an undergrad at Case. And that's where we first met and we went through um, undergraduate um, medical school. All right. Um, as well as we both did our residencies in New York. She did a residency in radiology at Beth Israel. I did mine at Mount Sinai uh, in uh, psychiatry. And we both did our fellowships up at uh, Yale and we've been in DC since 2006. And then I just started working at GW. So that's kind of bit about me, so to speak. Um, there's other things, uh, love basketball, uh, love sequential art, comic books, uh, listen to hip hop music a good bit. I'm a child of the eighties. <laughs> so, um, and pretty much, you know, I, yeah, there's, I, I, pretty much anything that's interesting. I will, you can get my attention <laughs> to say the least. So, so you said that you were interested in for medicine. 
super early on. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that was? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, medicine was peace, salvation, really. Um, when I was growing up, um, you know, I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time alone. So I saw it's probably one of my first memories was I went to this uh, school, uh, St. Robert's um, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Catholic school, uh, K through eight. So when I... I spent a lot of time like with myself, just kind of with myself. And I always remember going into the library. I remember picking up an anatomy book and I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting. Or, okay. Um, and it just stuck with me. So um, I went to, um, it just fascinated me and my aunt and uncle being uh, physicians. And the other thing was at that point in time, things were a little bit different because we're talking about the 70s and the 80s. And I was a young black male and um, at that point in time, an all white environment. Um, so there were different challenges and things of that nature with that K through eight. I mean, everyone was like perfectly lovely uh, by those standards back then, but it, it was just very different. So uh, for me, when I say medicine was certainly, if you will, salvation or a focus or a goal. Um, I'm not sure that in our current culture, a lot of people realize just what things were like back in the eighties. Um, it was now, I, I don't think people would really think that much of a young black male saying that they want to be a physician. I mean, they'd be like, great. Um, you know, but back then, I mean, that was just like the idea of a black male wanting to be a physician, being raised by a single black mother, um, was just like, whoa, um, like, you know, that's just, you know, a moonshot, so to speak. It just isn't going to happen. So um, that medicine was always my focus point and always my mom's focal point. And it was just some, and I also saw from my aunt and my uncle, just how they served and the kind of life that they had. And so for me, it had always just been like, that's what I wanted, like point blank in the discussion from a very, very, very early on stage. And so when I say uh, like salvation, things of that nature, when there'd be a lot of times, because as I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, so that's what kept my focus. That's what kept me interested. I mean, a lot of times other people would be doing this or doing that or whatever. Um, I'd have my head in a science book. Um, I can't say that I'd be here if I didn't uh, go through that period of like just kind of isolation focused on medicine. So and that served me well when I was in uh, undergrad as well as medical school. So when a young kid is in a library looking at a book and looking at anatomical pictures, psychiatry isn't often the first thing you think is going to be in that kid's head. No, nah, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, that's an interesting, I tell this story to my medical students all the time. Um, when I first got to medical school, I knew I wanted to be a physician, but I didn't know what kind of physician I wanted to be. Um, I really started to, I didn't actually become interested in psychiatry later. I remember going into medical school thinking, well, maybe I'll be an ED physician. I remember there's this episode of ER, they used to call the show ER back in the day with George Clooney. Um, and there was this picture of George Clooney that I remember this commercial episode. He's lifting some kid out of the water as a pediatrician and doing all this kind of stuff. And of course, me being me and being a comic book collector and stuff like that, I'm like, well, that seems like a very reasonable thing to do. Why not? I mean, hey, get to lift kids out of water. You get to do all this kind of stuff. So yeah, why not? I mean, so, but um, when I got to medical school, uh, I did an ED rotation. And I was kind of like, not a rotation, but a shadow. And I was kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe not. And then when we got into medicine, um, or not medicine, but when the first preclinical years that we had, at case we had this um, 
it was called the Mind Committee, which is a blend of neurology and psychiatry. And then boom, I was like, oh my goodness, I love this. This is amazing. I mean, it's neuroscience, it's neurons, it's the brain. Oh my goodness, it's the brain. But then it's people's stories. It's it has a level of subjectivity and art to it. It's it's not completely. It's not everything is figured out. So to me, that was um, that was fascinating. And you know, in many ways, I tell people um, I'm a learned extrovert. Uh, my default personality is introverted. Like stick me in a library or Barnes and Noble, I'm like a happy clam. Like you you won't even hear me talk. Um, so that mind committee was amazing. I just fell in love with it. And then people just asked me, they were, um, so Lorenzo, you should consider psychiatry. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I like the science. Don't like box me in. I'm not trying. I didn't say I wanted to be a psychiatrist. To be honest with you, I didn't know what a psychiatrist was before I entered medical school. It was like, hmm, what's a psychiatrist? So in any event, um, I did my first um, rotation. I was like, okay, I'm going to consider psychiatry. I did my first inpatient rotation. All right. And here I am. I got my white coat on, all this other kind of stuff. And I walk in and then somebody said, duck. I ducked. And they're like, it's flying. And there was something flying. Like, let's just call it not a, a, um, some bodily excrement, literally. Like and I was on the inpatient floor. I was like, what? I literally ducked. Uh, and then as I was on the inpatient rotation, um, I just really was like, this is psychiatry. This is not the mind committee. I'm out of here. Um, I didn't work my way <laughs> to come from like Cleveland and Euclid to deal with like fights and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, so I was not going to do psychiatry. I was like, I got to look for something else. Um, but then as I started, I kept on doing my rotations. Um, I remained the clinician or the medical student. I loved talking to people. I loved hearing their stories. I loved blending the medicine, the neuroscience, all of it. I and people said, well, you know, Lorenzo, if you're still interested in psychiatry, um, you should consider consult liaison psychiatry. And so I did a consult liaison rotation. And then um, I was like, wait, um, I can be called any moment. Um, I have to know a little bit about everything and a lot about psychiatry. Um, it's again, it is I get to talk with everybody, um, you know, across different specialties. Um, it's team based. Um it's intense. Sign me up. This is awesome. This is everything that I ever could have imagined that I could have ever wanted. Um, and so at that point in time, I was hook, line, and sinker into psychiatry and uh, CL psychiatry. But just as a thought, and I always tell my medical students this as well as my residents, I always thought that I was going to be the psychiatrist um, who specialized in the neuroimaging of delirium. Um, and actually, my wheelhouse became the psychiatrist who um, specialized, really, to be perfectly frank, mostly in psychotherapy and those with like uh, terminal conditions and those with serious illness. I never would have expected uh, my career turned that way. And eventually I ended up becoming a medical director of inpatient of, of uh, uh, psychiatric behavioral services at GW, which included the inpatient service. And I absolutely positively at this point in time, I love rotating on inpatient now. So I tell that to everybody. It's interesting how your career takes twists and turns and how things that you may not have initially been attracted to you are, but that was um, my journey in the psychiatry and I am slap happy. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. From the colleagues I have in psychiatry, it seems that a lot of them are now spending more of their professional lives on uh, on on uh, psychopharmacology and less of it on the talking cure. But it sounds like you spend 
more of your life on the Tolkien Cure? Yeah, you know, that's, um, I'm a little bit different. Um, and I've been fortunate to be in a position where I can structure a lot of my practice the way in which I want it uh, to be practiced. Um, but yeah, absolutely. A number of psychiatrists, depending on where they practice, um, they're going to be focused a little bit more on, let's say, 15 to 30 minute sessions. At 30 minute would be huge, probably more like 15 minute sessions. They're going to be taking more of a psychopharmacological approach. Um, they're going to be booked back to back to back to back to back. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's a different thing. Um, where where we practice at right now, we still, I would say we're a bit of a, because we're at a university setting, we're still a bit of a anomaly compared to how most people practice. Um, our minimum length of a session is half an hour. I still frequently um, focus on um, hour length sessions. For me, it is what I always tell my patients is that the medications, uh, I'm a psychiatrist, I absolutely believe in using medications, uh, but they're a tool, like, no, no different than a pen or anything of that nature. We use different tools, including, um, if you will, the psychotherapies, whether it's CBT, DBT, uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy. I'm more of a CBT, DBT person. Uh, uh, big credit to um, all of the attendings that trained me in the uh, Bronx VA at Mount Sinai, if they, for reason, happen to be listening to this. So um, we use whatever tools that are available. So I firmly believe in the power of, if you will, um, psychotherapy to affect change, particularly neuronal change. And I'm going to, I'm messing up the quote that I always use, and I I'm, I'm apologize, I don't remember. I remember an attending told me this, but he said that um, psycho um, psychopharmacology is the grossest form of psychotherapy, and psychotherapy is the subtlest form of psychopharmacology. So neuronal change is neuronal change. That's, that's what I, that's where I, kind of where I, break it down or how I think about it. And if you are able to engage with um, your patients in longer sessions, you can integrate and blend the two. I mean, that's that's really, to me, you need to, how do I put this? The relationships heal people, in my humble opinion. Regardless of whatever field you're in, it's the relationships that ultimately do the healing, so to speak. Um, not necessarily the farms or the technique or the this, that, or the other. It's the relationship, it's the trust is built, all of those things that really is where, to me, really the healing takes place in a collaborative fashion, not with doxes, deities, or anything like that. We're collaborative and we learn from each other. So that's just kind of how I do it. It sounds like you spend um, a lot of time meeting new patients. Yeah. This is not long-term uh, patients of yours, this part of your clinical life. It would seem that you have to be a good listener. Uh, mm -hmm. I, oh, anyone, obviously, in psychiatry probably has to be a better listener than someone who's in pathology. Um, but were you always a good listener? I mean, I, I would say people would I, – I defer to – my friends, my family, and uh, my students and my residents um, in regards to that. In my opinion, I think so. Um, I think it comes from uh, going back to childhood. Um, I spent a lot of time alone and a lot of time talking to my mom <laughs> so or listening to my mother and a lot of time um, listening to people. So if you, I was, I was not naturally a talker, as I said before, that's a learned, like I would, I wouldn't talk that much at all, um, but I would listen quite a bit uh, to what people would say, trying to understand the um, subtext, the tone, the nuance, if you will. At that point in time, when I was young, I never thought 
I was a good listener. I was just, I just considered myself shy. Um, and I, I probably have always enjoyed um, listening to people more than I enjoy talking. That that's always been one of the, I've, I take, it's, it's always better for me to hear your story. I enjoy that so much. Uh, I'd rather not even talk. So um, even when I'm on the MD Edge uh, site, so, so, we, so yeah. were you the kid who didn't miss anything? Like you picked up on things that adults were saying? I, I, I guess so. I mean, I probably would, I'd probably have to ask my mom. I mean, people probably would say that they said I was pretty, um, mature for my age. Um, I tended to gravitate towards, for lack of a better word, at the holiday parties, I'd gravitate towards the adult table and just kind of sit there and listen. Um, I think I have to give my father, um, I've given my mother a ton of credit with that because she, in terms of how she raised me um, to listen and to think heavily, but probably also I have to give my father a lot of credit because as I mentioned before, he was um, a pastor uh, or is a pastor still. And um, I would remember going to church on Sundays in Baptist church. So, I mean, you know, we, you know, he started like seven or eight or something like that, Sunday school, this, that, or the other. But I remember going into his office after uh, church and just listening to him and I'd see him listen to people constantly. And most of it was listening. Re- I mean, listening hard. And he'd be like, and he would share what he heard. And it wasn't the words. It was like what actually was being said and the meaning behind it. And so from both of them, and my mother went on to become an administrator and she was a teacher herself um, uh, before she uh, became a physical therapist and then, or kinesiotherapist rather than then she took on a large administrative role. So I would say that I was... Uh, naturally had a talent for listening. And that was fostered by my upbringing, um, particularly with my mother, as well as my father, in terms of really putting an emphasis on listening. Uh, Actually, and I'll leave it with this. My father said something that I always think about to this day. He said, you know, um, Lorenzo, if you put your ego um, aside in any group and understand what the group's mission is, a lot can be accomplished. And so I always think about that whenever I go into a group setting, what's the group mission? And that requires listening. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. The other patient story um, I think of is, um, I was working with a gentleman um, because one of the, I did a lot of work in psycho-oncology also, as well as neuropsychiatry. I was working with a gentleman. Uh, so that, that means patients who have cancer. Cancer, patients that have cancer, yes. And there are you know, psycho, you know, psychiatric or behavioral issues that Absolutely. they require help with. Absolutely. So I remember working with this uh, a gentleman, uh, an older um, African-American male, um, and he... Um, I want to say I'm blanking on it right now, but I want to say that he may have had pancreatic cancer. Um, and so I was working which, on which for those listening, you yeah. know, often has a pretty poor yes. prognosis. Right. So I was working with him and a lot of our therapy had to deal with him adjusting to what, you know, his, his life and dealing with an acute onset of depression. But as I grew to know him, I was struck by his spirit, the parallels um, in terms of what he had accomplished in his life and what kind of um, I was thinking about my father and myself in terms of what I had um, been through, um, and, you know, just trying to become a professional, um, black male trying to become a professional. And he had such a 
positive spirit about him. And I recall him as he slowly started to succumb, I guess, you know, to the, uh, to the cancer. And uh, something that I, I take away um, as we were talking in those last sessions, um, he was, um, he was, we're in my office and he said, oh gosh, you know, I'm just tired. I just, I just want to lay down. And um, I said, you know what, that's fine. And he sat there on my couch and he laid down and I could see that he was tired and he was exhausted. And we just stayed there while he rested in, um, in silence. And, you know, he later that night or that day, he passed away. So I think about that. Um, I think about that um, quite a bit. Um, I think about, um, there's another... Um, just tell me with, with that, that gentleman, you know, you said that you saw some parallels, some echoes. Tell me a bit more about him and about how, you know, what it was that you saw, you know, the, the connect in terms of the, the parallels. Well, the, probably the parallels um, was, without going into details, I mean, he cared about what he did in terms of his profession. Uh, he tried his best to be um, a good father good husband. Um, there were things that he was going to leave that he didn't get a chance to finish. And he strove his entire uh, life forward. He had made mistakes like all of us have. Um, and probably the, the thing I probably resonated the most with him um, was his spirit of positivity in the, in the setting of adversity. He had had a history of like overcoming things, overcoming things, overcoming things. And we both knew that this was not something that realistically he was, he could overcome it in a different way, but it was the chance that you weren't going to, chance are you are not going to beat by far pancreatic cancer. Um, and some, the thing, some, I guess some of the parallels, um, I think the other thing is like sometimes when you're in therapy, the person like you can sense what the other person's thinking, but sometimes they can sense what you're thinking. He didn't make excuses. He didn't make excuses. He didn't. Um, he struck me as a man who did not let anything serve as an obstacle, whether it's race or anything of that nature. So when I think about that, and that actually always reminded me of certainly um, my parents, but um, me him being an older black male reminded me of um, my father. So. Those and so as I talk about it now, I mean, you know, it's, I certainly wouldn't want to go through it anytime soon or whatnot. Um, but it probably would have been the. It was kind of I, there were probably certain things where he triggered certain thoughts of my father, and it was like not like, but it had elements of maybe if you were there with your father watching him pass. I've had that happen before in different situations when I've had patients that are literally of the same age range as I am doing many of the same things. Um, uh, I've had like certain patients that may trigger feelings or things very similar to um, like my mom, or they have very similar things. And I mean, in psychiatry, we train to deal with that. Deal is the wrong word. We, uh, deal is the correct word if it gets in the way of treatment, but we learn to appre appreciate, analyze it and say it for what it is. But I I'll take a step back though. Um, there's countertransference. Um, as well as transference, which comes from the patient. But the relationships are real. If you've spent time with people over years or things of that nature, it's not just you. And that's 
that's really, really, really different about the field of psychiatry, uh, even more so than other fields of medicine. Yes, the doctor-patient relationship is paramount in every field of medicine, and everyone develops relationships, very meaningful ones, uh, particularly um, in primary care. Um, but I would say, I think uh, our Chairman Griff said at one time, frequently with uh, when you're working with uh, in psychiatry, particularly in long-term psychotherapy, there's things that you, the patient, and the universe are the only ones that know. That's it. That's it, period. And that level of intimacy is sacrosanct. In my own work as an emergency physician, I'm often in contact with colleagues in psychiatry when we have a patient and there's a question about whether they are at risk of suicide. And in such assessments, there's a balance to be struck between depriving someone of their freedom when they are involuntarily admitted versus the risk of suicide when someone is deemed appropriate to be discharged home. I asked Dr. Norris about situations in which patients who have been discharged home after a psychiatric assessment have gone on to commit suicide. I actually, uh, in my role, um, I lead the um, our hospital's um, medicine and um, morbidity and mortality rounds. So, content. I've also served on our hospital's quality committee. So, I am very familiar with um, adverse outcomes. And whereas of many of our colleagues, whether it's in cardiology or surgery things occur. I mean, you know, you're not infallible. Patients are going to die. Um, in the field of psychiatry, I can't speak for other departments. Um, we don't, psychiatry as a whole, we don't have that mentality. Whether we, we just don't. I have, psychiatrists do not have, the vast majority of psychiatrists that I've encountered, they do not have the mentality that I will lose a patient, that it is at some point in time inevitable. They may theoretically or cognitively have it, but emotionally, I've seen, they do not, they do not approach the loss of a patient in general, in my opinion, say what a cardiologist or a surgeon, a surgeon would. Now, if you have very good structured M&Ms and you think about it, then you most absolutely can. Um, but psychiatrists just, in my opinion, and I encourage psychiatrists around the world to chip in and say, Norris, you're wrong, <laughs> but I have not I personally, after training residents, junior faculty, working with folks, and again, I haven't seen it. And that's just, as you said, it's an occupational it's, it's an occupational hazard for all of us, but with psychiatry, we just do not, again, I think it has to do with the nature of our relationships. We just don't, it, we take it on a different level. And very briefly, and just given our time constraints, I mean, you know, in say three minutes, can you talk about the key elements of when you visit someone to decide if you believe they are a risk to themselves, what it is that you're looking at to make that assessment. Okay, sure. And what a typical assessment is like. Okay. Well, I mean, the typical assessment is basically like the assessment that everyone is trained to do in terms of getting your standard history and physical, reviewing the chart data, uh, getting collateral. Uh, if I have to think about something, um, there's a couple of things. Um, this is a more detailed conversation, but, uh, you look at past history. Uh, I look at the level of anxiety, all right, because anxiety and fear and things of that nature, as opposed to depression, uh, you certainly look for psychosis, all right? And then the next thing that you do is, again, it goes back to the spirit of curiosity. Um, I actually get, you have to really understand um, a patient's, um, where they're at in regards to the suicidality. Um, so the long story, 
to make it brief, you ask about suicide more than once in different ways. And you actually, if you have enough time, you press the issue. Uh, an approach called the um, case approach. There's other, uh, many of these approaches. Um, the beauty of that approach is you bring the patient to a point of distress and pain to where they're more willing to talk about suicide and it gets elicited. All right. And then you're able to engage in discussion. In other words, you lead the patient to a point of distress. Then the suicide comes out and then you're able to work with the patient. But you have to have a high index of suspicion. And the moment you get, that's the thing, the moment you start to get too bored, the moment your pattern recognition overrules, like kind of you feeling what's going on, that's when you're going to miss it. When I have, uh, at whenever um, I find myself, okay, they're just calling me down. This is another person, X, Y, or Z. Let me just go down here and do it really fast or whatever. That's when I have to stop because that's when I'm getting ready to make a mistake. All right, because I lose that curiosity and that ability to listen for what is said and what's not said. So again, I look. There are, lo- there are a number of things you can look for, but I look for anxiety. I look for psychosis. Um, I look for, if you will, really what are the things that uh, keep them uh, moving forward. And I probe the suicidality. Particularly, you start to ask. You you look at how do they find meaning and what would suicide actually do. But you have to bring the patient to a place of a combination of place of distress, but comfort. That's two things. I have to have you distressed enough to where you want to talk about it, but comfortable enough to where you want to talk with me about it. Because most people just aren't going to talk about it. And I'll tell you who else isn't going to talk about it. Um, Us, physicians. We are not going to talk about it at all. Uh, So that's that's a whole nother um entry but that, that, that those are kind of the nuts to do this justice i need a whole podcast sure I, I got you so no but i so you raised a really interesting point just one uh, point amongst the things you said that i you know rung true you know the danger of of, uh, of sort of closing down your perception of the case to it so when you you know as the person making the determination, how do you keep yourself open? Okay, that's a really great question. A um, couple of things off the top of my head. Um, first thing is you do is for patients that are, rec- because that, um, I define that that's a recurrently readmitted patient or, or patient with uh, recurrent readmission characteristics. So that I'm thinking, I'm trying to think what's the evidence based on that patient, just because that helps anchor us in knowledge and evidence base. The next thing, uh, that you do in this particular situation is ask you ask yourself, for me at least, what has changed? Has anything changed in this patient's situation or or, or, um, or history or health that is going to change the level of suicidality? Uh, next, the third component is, as you kind of get at, we don't really have great tools in regards to predicting suicidality. All right, we just don't. All right, after you get past 24 to 48 hours, doesn't anyone will tell you we our ability just drops so i do not put myself i do not get comfortable but nor do i get overly cavalier if you will about my ability to predict suicide so what i then i look for is what can we do every time the patient is here to either move the arrow in a certain direction and not make it worse. So um, if there's a housing issue, can we address housing? If there's a better med that the patient could be on or tweak, can we do that? If it's a schizophrenic patient and medical noncompliance is an issue, how can we start them on a long-acting injectable? So in other words, I start attacking factors 
risk factors, uh, things of that nature. And I'm thinking about lowering, if you will, their vulnerability or the probability of suicide, knowing I can never eliminate it. And then the other thing that I do to go back to your, your question about like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you not miss it? This is a bit of radical um, and it's not for everybody and people are going to probably maybe they may disagree, but sometimes this is um, helpful. Assume everybody that you meet is suicidal. Everyone, every single person, everyone radical. And by that, I mean, Everyone has, everyone exists on a continuum of self-destructiveness. All right. That way you don't miss it and you're comfortable talking about it. So particularly with physicians or what I do not assume. So whenever I give, to give you an example, whenever I give a lecture, whenever I give a lecture, I know that in that lecture, there are at least going to be, if it's a hundred residents or students, there's going to be anywhere between two to 10 that are actively contemplating suicide. It is a given. That way you stay curious and you never miss it. So, and also I don't assume that I can stop it. All right. What I can do is collaborate with the patient to reduce risk and create a life worth living and give them the skills to cope with it. But that's another way you just don't, the moment you say this patient isn't suicidal, that's it. No. Where do they exist on this continuum of self-destructiveness, which you exist on also. The thing that would, that would scare me is among all the different, interventions you're you're looking at i mean to support the patient the key one is do they have to be kept uh uh you know in a hospital or facility or can they be sent home and uh you know even if someone has been to an er 40 times and discharged 40 times and has not hurt themselves 40 times the 44th time 41st time they could hurt themselves they most certainly you know, can they most certainly despite can. your best efforts yeah well that that gets into um really what your goal is and we can take a little bit from our surgical colleagues so i'll tell patients this straight out um in order for me to collaborate with you and to get you better i'm going to do things that involve a certain level of risk which includes discharging you from the ed or not admitting you to the hospital because what does the evidence base show us not just that his like scholarship, but our own, your own evidence base. Hospitalizations do not change your course. That's see that, that makes it, that makes things really straightforward. I would not give you a medication or an intervention that does not work, nor would I do something. I would not prescribe a surgery for you that is not going to be effective. So when I think about hospitalization as an intervention that is not effective, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm going to try to work on things that I think are going to be effective and I'm going to be collaborative with you as well as your family. And that's where people may, I'll have the discussion with everyone. Like what I am proposing involves risk. I will be very direct with everybody. You, you could die, but just like I, I borrowed from my colleagues in surgery, I do not want that to occur, but everything involves risk. And the moment you think that it doesn't, and you're not honest with the patient about it, I think that's an issue. So I try to be very direct with folks that what I'm going to do involves risk. And my colleague, Dr. Trinidad, coined a term, and I don't know if anyone else has coined it, but I mean, I use it all the time because he said it. Uh, hopefully he'll listen to this podcast because um, he taught it to me, particularly in hospitalist medicine. We practice high-risk psychiatry. 
particularly in a hospital setting, ED. And so do my colleagues in the ED because I joke with my colleague, Dean Haywood. I'm like, I call her an ED psychiatrist because the mental health burden in the ED is enormous. That's high-risk psychiatry. So you are transitioning people out of the ED who are going to have an elevated risk of suicide. And we, as opposed to like, we just have to accept that and own it. That is what it is. But ultimately, we're trying to help you live, not for you to figure out ways to slowly die. All right. And that involves risk. Now, that's not everyone's cup of tea, but that's kind of how I see it. And that's how and I'm very direct with people when I say it. Another thing I come across in the emergency department sometimes is patients who are hard to work with for reasons of personality or behavior, for instance. And I asked Dr. Norris about this. You know, I, I now it's just another it's just another, you know, diagnosis. It's just another, you know, struggle someone has. And I can, as you put it, kind of detach, you know, um, a little. Yeah. The problem, I think the problem, particularly, um, in regards to the training is for instance, like when I say personality to most medical students, um, or residents, um, I'm like, what is personality? They're like, uh, what's the science behind it? Uh, all right. So when I say that personality is a combination of temperament and character and temperament, uh, as we conceptualize the biochondria models based off the amygdala core, where character is based off the hippocampus core, which are two different, um, if you will, memory systems. And then we talk about the different variants of temperament, whether it's uh, the four main ones, again, using clonture, harm avoidance, reward dependence, novelty seeking, uh, persistence. And then we talk about the three dimensions of uh, character, self-directedness, cooperativeness, and self-transcendence. Or you talk about a five-factor model of personality, which is linked with neurotransmitter systems. Because see, now I just transformed it. Now I turned it into something that is not like this person, like, oh, they dislike me or whatever. But now, see, I put science behind it. And then that, now there's, uh, it's not, I think that's why, because when people, when you talk about personality, people tend to sometimes, you get personal with it, as opposed to getting, scientific. you don't get scientific with it. And if you look at DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, which was the uh, premier therapy for borderline personality disorder, but has spread to pretty much everything um, else, um, which is phenomenal. You don't, you're approaching, if you learn how to approach personality from the person as well as the science, you're going to be able to readily work on that, like, oh, this person doesn't. So for me, whenever I think personality, I think that. I mean, I'm I'm doing a whole lot of stuff that other people aren't doing. So I mean, that also cuts into it. So that's when I say that. I'm like, oh, well, this person clearly, I mean, they have a high level of harm avoidance or X, Y, or Z. Um, their, uh, their character dimension in terms of cooperativeness is low. These are some of the things that we can do in collaboration with them or whatnot. I looked at their invalidating environment. They were exposed to X, Y, or Z, which to cause this type of development in regards to X, Y, or Z pathway of serotonin, which we know when looking at neuroimaging, this is, over. you see what I'm saying? I can, I think that's why I love psychiatry. I can go either way with it. Um, which, and I'll use whichever one works. If the kind of traditional doctor-patient personal relationship doesn't work, I'll go right to the science. It doesn't. Either way, the mission is healing. So, end of, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the consult psychiatry service, Dr. Norris is asked to see patients who have been hospitalized to give opinions and recommendations regarding psychiatric issues in those patients. One example he discussed was patients in whom there is a question of psychosis or schizophrenia. So, probably... What I would say is here would be a common theme um, with a first break psychosis. The student comes in uh, or someone comes in and they really feel as though um, they're being monitored or stalked. Uh, they feel as though that there is a conspiracy that involves um, 
the United States government um, to specifically target them, and that they're getting messages from every, if you will, TV screen in the hospital. So if you take out a cell phone, the person actually feels as though um, that cell phone is being being used to monitor them. So if you actually get a call and you look at that cell phone, they interpret that as a sign that they're getting ready to be attacked. Um, that becomes actually rather difficult when you have that level of paranoia in trying to work with somebody because they clearly are going to uh, not have capacity um, and they're going to need, um, if you will, to be involuntarily hospitalized. I shouldn't say clearly, but under most circumstances. So um, when I think about that level of paranoia um, in regards to presentations, which is which is very common, very common. How does it generally work when you sit down with someone like that? I mean, the student, um, uh, you know, comes in, um, someone on the service that they're in, you know, calls you and says, uh, I think this person needs to be assessed. And how does the interview usually go? Well, usually the interview goes, um, one, um, depending on what type of relationship that you are able to establish, um, you have to, you want to calm down this, you want to lower the affect of the situation and try to see what level of insight does the patient have in that situation? Um, unfortunately, depending on how the level of the paranoia or the psychosis, you frequently have to take, I wouldn't call it an adversarial relationship, but in psychiatry, we are the ones obviously frequently responsible for involuntarily hospitalizing patients against their will. Um, so your job is to assess the patient as well as, if you will, help stabilize, but also at the same time, um, be willing to speak with the patient in a very honest and sincere fashion that you feel so that they're a danger to themselves or others and that they need to be hospitalized. Normally, what I try to do in those situations is listen to the patient as much as possible. Um, I do not try to, because it won't work, but it is counterproductive easily. I do not try to argue them out of the delusion or the paranoia. I do not try to convince them. Otherwise, I try to determine, all right, this is what we have. This is your perception. And it is your perception. And that is causing you distress. What can we do to help you with this? I try to focus on the strengths and align with the patient as opposed to going into the delusional system, which is not useful. I find that if you validate and you work with the patient as well as the family, then you're in a much better position to possibly get the patient to take medications as well as to come out of this delusional. Um, and that's ultimately going to help the patient. Now, obviously, it depends on a number of other factors. But for me, if I had to pick, it goes right back to what we were talking about earlier, Paris. Um, the cornerstone of it is listening, but being authentic. So I, what I don't like to do is to surprise people like, you know, they feel so they're getting ready to leave the hospital. And like, and then I say, well, no, actually, you're going to be hospitalized. No, I don't. I don't like to do that. I listen. I validate. Um, I try to find share the patient's strengths and see what we can do. But I don't hesitate to tell the patient, as well as their family, early on that I feel as though you need to be hospitalized. And actually, a lot of over the years, a lot of people uh, have responded to that approach. Mm-hmm. So, what do you do when you know you you do have to carry a cell phone because you're you're on call? Um, and you're sitting down with someone and they do feel that any screen is monitoring them and they're anxious, they're keyed up um, and uh, you get a call. I mean, what? How do you handle that? Oh, well, you you listen to the patient. And, and for me, this is in that particular example, um, you turn off all the TV sets, which is something you should do with delirium anyway. Um, and you give the medical students your cell phone or to whoever you give a nurse your cell phone. Yeah, yeah you just, you show the, pa- you get rid of the phone. Yeah, anything that's going to interfere within reason 
with you now, if you don't happen to have a resident or a medical student or something of that nature, um, or a nurse or anything of that nature, then, you know, you figure it out. Maybe you put it on do not disturb or something of that nature, but you don't do it. I mean, so, and I think clinicians get very rigid in their approach. Um, like for instance, they will, here's a classic example, um, to me, they will absolutely have to be the person who does the interview, but the patient may have an alliance with a medical student, a nurse or a PA or whomever. You can be present during the interview, just let the other person do the talking, do it as a team. Um, but if you get so rigid in terms of how you communicate with the patient, or this has to be this way or the other, you lose that spirit of adaptivity as well as curiosity. Dr. Lorenzo Norris, thank you for coming to talk with me on Medical Memos. Absolutely, Paris. And I'm definitely going to, um, uh, hopefully I will be able to extend an invitation to you. Love to hear you on, uh, come and speak to us on MD Edge. Uh, I wish you guys uh all the best in the world. You're doing some really great stuff here. I hope people tune into this podcast. I love the format and you're really knocking it out, Paris. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Check it out.